Hello and welcome to the Motion E podcast. I'm Stuart Garlick and on this podcast we are talking to the race Formula E correspondent Sam Smith about his book Formula E Racing for the Future and various other topics around the sport as well. Um, we've got loads of podcasts coming up this Formula E season, which, as you know, starts on the Friday after we post this podcast in Diria, Saudi Arabia. Uh, and the first piece of content on the website for this season is the big preview, which is uh, over on motione.org. And there is also an interview with Lucas Degrassi, the season three Formula E champion. Uh, it's exclusive and it's over on Motion E Plus, our new area for insiders, people who want the inside line on Formula E and electric vehicles. And uh, for only a very reasonable price, you can get in there and read that and plenty of other exciting content this season as well. So, enjoy the podcast. Sam Smith, thank you for coming on the Motion E podcast. We're talking to you for this podcast episode about the book Formula E Racing for the Future, which was released uh, at the end of the last Formula E season. Yeah, pretty close. Yeah, it was actually uh, May, but it was hmm. um, yeah, it was a uh, it was a big project. I mean, we actually stopped writing it pretty much at the end of the season before, which was season six at twenty twenty, and then. Things were delayed slightly with the uh, the knock-on effects of the pandemic with uh, putting the book together. I, yeah. I always presumed that writing a book was pretty simple. You know, you write it and go off and get printed. But it's a bit more in-depth than that, shall we say. So uh, there were a few bumps along the way, but we, yeah, we managed to get it out. And Evro published the the book, which uh, which has gone down very well. I think uh, hmm. I've, I've got. I've had nothing but uh, positive feedback, which is which is nice. Well, that's fantastic. Um, you're working at the moment as the Formula E correspondent for the website therace.com, um, but you're also dovetailing that in with uh, with with uh, PR work for outside of that as well. But uh, you've written a few books in your career. Um, what would you say were the principal challenges in putting this one together? Because it's a pretty much all-encompassing history of the sport of Formula E. So, uh, how did you begin to know? You know, what would be the important plots and subplots to put in this and how to put it together well if uh, truth be told i didn't know it was it was kind of a lot of research a lot of um, a lot of speaking to people a lot of understanding where formula e came from i mean it, i think for people who who haven't been involved in it it seemed to kind of come from nowhere but actually the roots of it go back quite a long way and i address that in the book with a bit of a sort of prehistory of uh, formula e to, to some extent but yeah, it was it, it was it was a big job. Um, lots of planning, lots of understanding how it would be, how it could be put together to both encapsulate the, the spirit and the, the startup nature of the championship, but also to to make sure that people who were new to the championship could understand it and and, and read it. Um, you know, you didn't have to necessarily be a hardcore fan to to understand what it was and, and what it had done um, up to that point. So, yeah, there was there was a kind of a, a balance to be to be found in it. Um, lots of really interesting stories, which I think not many people knew about before they read the book, in terms of the fact that it all you know it almost died within within three races of it happening, which mm. um, not many people realise how serious that was, uh, and then how it grew and blossomed, and you know those early years, which I think we're going to kind of major on a bit is. Is fascinating because getting something like an international, a genuine international sporting business 
franchise, whatever you want to call it, series up and running is one of the hardest things you can do from scratch. Uh, but to do it with new technology, um, yeah, that is a big challenge. And I think I was probably one of the naysayers quite early on. No, not you know, not active naysayer, but kind of thinking, well, this this is really up against it. You know, whoever, whichever mad men and mad women are involved in this, it's kind of you know, good luck to you because it's going to be really tough. Um, but it, you know, it had a charismatic leader in Alejandro Gag. It had the political um, arm in in the FIA, obviously, who were instrumental in, in getting it together. Uh, and it had some it had some really good good people within it. So it stood a fair chance. But of course, getting it off the ground is one thing. Sustaining it is is very much another. Absolutely. And you mentioned the word startup there, which is an interesting word because it brings to mind tech companies. And I kind of think, and I'd love to get your view on this, that Formula E's evolution since then is a bit like a tech company's evolution in that, you know, when we look back now, it's fairly obvious Formula E was going to work. But of course, as you say, that was not obvious at all in the first season even. And um, it strikes me in the early days of a startup, you've got um, uh, founders kind of working 24-7 and um, um, kind of um, letting other things go by the wayside and really, you know, pulling investment out of wherever they can. And and then maybe later on, um, as a company becomes more mature, um, the problems become different, such as, you know, um, keeping big corporations interested, which is where we are now. Um, Would you say that there is is a kind of a tech startup type journey to the problems that Formula E's had remaining relevant and surviving? Yeah, I think that's fair to say to, to a great extent last year. I, you know, I think that comes into it. It's always interesting when I, when I speak to people, whether involved in, in Formula E or not, there is a it's this strange old thing in racing, which is a, a technical sport and a, should be a forward-looking sport. To me, it's always been about innovation and competition that innovation the technical side of it you know I'm, I'm always astounded when you do get a lot of um uh, critics of formula e and, and they say well you know it's uh the only thing they never question is the relevancy and look you know formula e had a key attribute and that was the relevancy and and a, some far-sighted people saw that very early probably probably even as early as kind of the end of the first decade of this of this century so 2008 2009 time uh, and this is in the book you know people like lord drace and lord paul drayson were very much looking at ev tech lots of companies in what we know as motorsport valley were looking at, at ev tech and ev sport in, in particular and a lot of those people are still involved um now that that combined with a bit of good old-fashioned look and you know that call it what you will you can call it luck you can call it foresight you know formula e did have some slices of luck and not just on the technical side but the sporting side the political side as well with investors and and so forth and and that's again that's reflected in the book but the one of the biggest slices of luck or fortune in my mind and i think in lots of people's mind was was what happened in 2016 with what became known as the the diesel gate scandal hmm. which um you know we won't go into here because we'll we'll need an, another six episodes to uh <laughs> to, to drill down into that but uh you know I, th- I think that changed a lot and i don't think it was any well it certainly wasn't any coincidence that within a year 
of, of all that becoming public that you had Porsche, uh, Audi and Mercedes coming coming to Formula E in that kind of golden summer of 2017. But to address your your question, uh, yeah, I, you know, it's easy to do a kind of um, retrospective and look back with a bit of um, whatever you want to call it, you know, a little a little bit of hagiography or whatever. But it, the, the fact is, is that Formula E was always relevant and it was always looking to the future and it had the backing of the FIA and in particular the FIA, the ex-FIA president, John Todd. Uh, and it had some really passionate and charismatic and um, forward-thinking businessmen uh, in, in Alejandro Agag, uh, investors like Enrique Banuelos and, and obviously Alejandro's partner, uh, Alberto Longo. Um, and and they knew that they had to get to landmark steps. So finishing, you know, getting the first race, getting the first season over, and that was the hardest hardest part. I think was getting that first season done. Um, and you know, one of the most interesting parts of the book was how it very nearly didn't get that done. And you know, what would have happened? You know, if it, if it would have fallen apart and the season wouldn't have finished, and it would have been null and void. You know, it's it's a doomsday scenario. But still, I think that even if that worst case scenario would have happened, that with the um, with the vision and the power of the FIA, it would have been reborn a, a year or two later. I don't think Formula E would just not happen. I think it had to happen. And I think what, what it's evidenced is that you can get a really good, exciting, relevant sporting proposition um, and you can uh, it can become a world championship within... 10 years. I mean, it was a world championship within six years of it existing. And you can get major manufacturers on a level playing field with privateers, which is important. Um, and also, you, could, you, can also, you can also fit it into the framework or the roadmap of, of motorsport generally, you know, even though it's a, in my mind, it's a completely separate thing almost. In, you know, it's, it's kind of, it, although it is one of the one of the five world championships that are around now, I, I always think of it as a, a completely separate thing. And look, you know, I love Formula One as much as anyone. And I love, you know, going to Silverstone Classic and seeing Lola T-70s and Porsche 917s and, and all that good stuff. But ultimately, this is the future. You know, a good part of the future is going to be electric, if not all of it. So, yeah, there's all that to package in, um, but it needs a lot of good management to... Uh, to let it blossom and let it grow um and i think that has happened it's not been easy and there's been again a lot of bumps in the road um but the fact is that it it is growing um and and the next thing that's going to come on the radar in the next sort of three four five years and i know we'll touch on this a bit later stuart but mm. is going to be how it filters into um the, the bigger branches at the top of the motorsport tree um and and how it's going to possibly coexist with formula one in the future or if there's going to be a melding of the two i mean that just is it's inevitable that that will happen at some stage if you speak to alejandro agag it should probably happen next year if you speak to jamie regal the ceo he'll say no but it's, it's a decade away or whatever so um yeah lots lots of interesting things but ultimately and i've, I've gone on a long time here but ultimately <laughs> formula e had to happen uh, and i think it's happened as it's not been perfect, but I think it's happened as uh, pretty positively and, and has been reasonably well managed to, to get to this point where we're at now with uh, season eight and on the cusp of the 
the third uh, third generation of the rules. I uh, don't think I didn't notice you getting the Eric Clapton lyric into that answer, by the way. Let it blossom, let it grow. But still, um, uh, one th- one thing you mentioned was the involvement of the FIA there. And uh, something that comes across very clearly in the book is how just how involved Jean Tot was, if not on a day-to-day basis, certainly in terms of overall policy making for the formula. Um and that seems to have continued right up until uh, the election of Mohammed Ben Sulayem as his replacement uh, as FIA president. Um, in fact, you reported recently that one of the reasons Formula E was not considering going back to, for example, Ricardo Tormo circuit, Valencia, was because Jean Tote had said there was no chance of them going back to permanent circuits. Um, so I guess two questions here. Um, exactly how important was Jean Tut's uh, sort of regular involvement with Alejandro Agag in those very early days? And just how involved was he, even with all the other things he was presumably involved with in 2021? Yeah, well, he was vital. Uh, and, and Alejandro quite often says that um, Jean Tut was vital. It was as much a vision uh, as his as it was of Alejandro's. And, and actually, you know, there's the romantic version, which I write about in the book about the you know the um the famous napkin which uh, was signed and and that's all very nice and romantic and it and it is there it did happen I've, I've seen it i've been to the restaurant where um where it where it hangs now in a frame and um, i think i was the first the first person to find it actually and there's a picture of it which i took in, in the book but you know more than that the, the practicalities of getting formulary up and running and making manufacturers um, understand that electric mobility in the future and, and racing in in or around or close to cities was going to be a, a major pull uh, from a marketing standpoint. So Todd was vital. Would it have happened without him? Yes, it would, but it probably wouldn't have happened in 2014. It would probably just be starting now or within its sort of second or third season. I'm, I'm convinced of that. Um, yes, from that point on, he took quite a hands-on approach to certain aspects of Formula E. Um, there's a few points in the book, especially when the Gen 1 to Gen 2 um, era passed. So going into Gen 2, Todd was very hands-on and I believe actually had um, design input into the aesthetics of the car, hmm. particularly a lot was personally signed off by him. Um, he took a very detailed um, interest in the roadmap, the technical roadmap, which he did with, uh, well, which he didn't do, but he advised on with Professor Burkhard Gershel, who who is in the book in terms of writing the rules and understanding where things went uh, with the um, um, the EENC, which is the, I always get this wrong, it's the Energy Efficiency Commission or some kind, I've got that completely wrong, but uh, people know what I mean. And um, He's uh, he's done a great deal for Formula E. Um, it's, it's yeah, the Valencia thing was unfortunate. Um, it was a it was a debacle. I mean, I think everyone knew that. Um, it was handled appallingly by by Formula E and by the FIA. But it's over now. Uh, there thankfully wasn't any real long lasting damage done to it. But Todd obviously saw this, um, and I. I believe that um, that he has told the promoters that in no way, shape or form, even though we're in very uncertain times in putting calendars together, that Formula E should go to permanent tracks. And I'm, I'm kind of, I'm on board with that. I, you know, I was very, 
apprehensive about going to Valencia and Puebla last year. Um, in my mind, it, it just didn't work. I mean, that's not to say that they didn't, the promoters didn't do a, a fine job in getting them ready and, and putting on what was necessary, but it, it just didn't work. You know, I don't think it's, I don't think it's new to say, or, you know, fresh insight to say that Formula E is not the quickest form of motorsport. I mean, we're talking sub Formula 3, really sub Formula 3 lap times mostly. It's going to get quicker in Gen 3 and it will eventually get really quick uh, with Gens 4 and 5. But when you put them on a permanent or semi-permanent circuit, they just look damn slow. Um, but then forward wind two weeks and we go to Monaco and everyone's up in arms saying, oh, you know, you can't, well, not everyone, but quite a few people are saying you can't go to Monaco. One of them was Todd saying we can't go to Monaco because everyone will compare them against Formula One, you know, which is, it was just not unfounded. It was an unfounded um, worry. Um, so once that was put to bed and we had a great race at Monaco and they were overtaken up the hill and around Mirabeau and up Casino and the chicane, Everyone forgot about that. So again, going back to what I said before, and and I think some of this comes across in the book is that, you know, and maybe it's just a reflection of society. Everyone's got a, a, quite an extreme opinion, and there are lots of extreme opinions about Formula E. And when I speak to other journalists who don't get Formula E and and just disregard it, you know, the first thing I say to them is, well, firstly, go to a race and experience it, and the second thing is, well what don't you like or what don't you get about it it's great racing it's got fantastic grid it's got multiple manufacturers it's got a great race format yes there are a couple of gimmicks in it but you know so what there's gimmicks in formula one i mean drs is a gimmick so just have a little stand back look back and say oh actually and the amount of people that contacted me and contacted others when monaco happened and we had this great race was amazing and it was like well you know uh, no shit, Sherlock. You know it's a it's <laughs> it's a great race at Monaco, and you know this is what Formula E is about. I reckon you probably get one dud race in Formula E every year. There's probably two two last year, but there's always something happening. You know, there's always something going on with Formula E, and I think it's great entertainment and it's ultra competitive racing with manufacturers pushing every nth degree. Uh, so you know what's not to like. Uh, I'll just leave it at that on that one, Stuart. Yeah, I think some absolutely. of that comes across in the boat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, we, we will come into some of the uh, modern issues a bit bit later on. But I'm I'm interested to get your point of view on the Gen One car because uh, you go into a lot of technical detail in the book on the Gen One car on how Spark Racing Technologies worked with ART and others to get it together in time. And actually, what what comes across and what, what is really fascinating is how little time they had to produce it uh, from the FIA's green light and also how they were expecting to have a Nissan Leaf uh, adapted battery in there, which never turned up in the end. So um, exactly how difficult was it um, to, to get that Gen 1 car on the road in time? It was pretty difficult. It was a tough project. Um, I've spoken to a lot of people who were uh, involved in the uh, development uh, just getting everything together yeah the, i mean the big the big thing was replacing uh nissan who were going to be the original uh battery provider spec battery providers that didn't happen uh, williams advanced engineering were deployed at a very late stage to get all that ready and that was a massive effort a huge effort 
Um, but they, Alejandro, the, the vision of it coming together with these really good constituent parts, uh, you know, Renault involved, um, Spark obviously, you know, Dallara did the did the chassis, um, and, and Williams came in and were, were really uh, considering the, the late period in which they came to it. You know, there were there were issues in the beginning. There were always going to be some issues, but there were, again, there wasn't a doomsday scenario of, of cars being left on the grid or, or what have you. So, I think everyone did a, a really good job. But you know, racing has that propensity, doesn't it? To you know, the amount of times when I used to work at Lola of walking walking into an assembly area or a, a pit lane and seeing you know twelve thousand bits of a racing car scattered everywhere. And, you know, we've got three hours to get it together racing teams and racing people seem to make it happen and and that philosophy and that kind of ethic i think really helped make it happen in that time frame um and and to do it from really they started on it i would say seriously started on it only in at the very end of 2012 so to get it done within pretty much 18 to 20 months is is a massive undertaking and um uh, and and that was with a lot of questions still remaining unanswered. You know, there was a lot of uh, investment. That, you know, the, the investment, the initial investment by Banuelos, um, w- was done reasonably early. But still, you know, I mean, uh, another great racing um, tradition is underestimating the budget, isn't it? And I and I think Alejandro <laughs> did that fairly spectacularly in the first year. Um, but you know, there was always one eye on on an investment coming in, which came in from from Liberty. Um, after a few races in season one, so that all worked out. But yeah, just going back to the technical aspect, uh, a huge push, and I think again that lead up to the first race in Beijing, which by the way was also the site of the World Motorsport Council meeting. So you had all the delegates from the uh, World Motorsport Council there. I mean, you couldn't get more pressure, uh, and particularly Alberto Longo comes across really well on that, giving a perspective and understanding on how pressurized it was for them to get everything ready and, and put and um, make sure it worked was, yeah, you can almost feel it off the page, you know, the, the tension. Um, and of course they, they had a, the bizarre thing is they had this really, really unusually boring race in the first race at Beijing until mm. the very last corner when the headlines were hit by that infamous shunt between Prost and, uh, um, Nick Heidfeld. So I, I, got, I, got they... the, I got the impression with that first race that, because uh, I, I rewatched it recently, um, it felt like most of the field were so scared of damaging the, these brand new cars that they actually weren't willing to take any risks for the first, well, three quarters of the race, really, I would say. But uh, maybe your view is different on that. Yeah, well, the funny thing is, although I've done the vast majority of races, I missed the first race. I was actually at Paul Ricard doing a European Le Mans series race, believe it or not. And I was mm. kind of watching it, half watching it on TV. And I, I saw this monster shunt and thought, oh, that's that could be the end of the the, uh, the adventure up to that point. But yeah, I mean, you know, I wasn't there, so I couldn't tell you, but I have spoken to people who were there, obviously. And I, I'm not sure. There was this issue with the suspension. You know, they, they'd slightly misjudged the um the the strength of the um i think it was the tow links on the car um and we saw that more in buenos Aires when there were multiple failures over the bumps and the curbs 
Whereas at Beijing, yeah, I think it was more at Beijing, just, yeah, people generally just trying to get a grasp on it. A lot of the teams were still learning about the um, how to manage the energy properly, thermal management, lots of different things. You know, I spoke to Nelson Piquet for the book and, and Piquet was saying that um, it wasn't until the third race that they actually understood how they could use the, the beeps to manage the the drivers get audible beeps to hmm. to know how to manage their their energy and and that didn't come on for some teams until two or three races into the championship oh, so wow. it was a very yeah it was a very nascent thing and everything was growing so you know when you look at season one um it's a bit of an anomaly not just in the sense that that pk was champion because he did a, he did a decent job and, and deserved to be champion but it was just so higgledy piggledy you know it was so that the professionalism was there, but understanding how to race properly in Formula E and how to maximise things from an engineering perspective and sporting perspective were were fairly primitive compared to what they are today, massively so. So, and, um, and as, yeah. as as someone who loves motorsport trivia like me, that there are so many names blasts from the past that come up in this book that it, it, it's brilliant. So, for example, I remember you tweeted when you were about to uh, pu- um, when the book was about to get published. Um, who was the first driver to uh, sit in the original Formula E Gen One car? And um, I think most people said Degrassi. Uh, someone said, "Is it Alejandro a gag?" And nobody got. Uh, former Formula Three champion Bertrand Baguette, who I always yeah. th- I, I always thought was uh, done dirty by done dirty by the fact that no one could take his name seriously because very very quick driver in his day. Yeah, Bertie Breadstick. <laughs> he was uh, sometimes known by his mechanics and others. Uh, yeah, that was that was a strange one. We got a picture of that. That was the first time it ever ran in the car park of. Uh, ART in uh, rural France. There's, yeah, the, I, you know, I love trivia too, and I've done a fair few pieces about uh, drivers who've tested Formula E cars and so forth. You know, not a lot of people know that reigning champion Nick De Vries was one of the development drivers in in that you know that pre 2014 period. So beginning Seriously? of 14 and through through the summer, yeah, Nick De Vries was because he was he was racing with ART in whatever it was then Formula Three or, or whatever. I was I was going to uh, say he, surely surely Nick De, Nick, Nick De Vries was about seven years old at that time, wasn't he? Well, this is the funny thing, isn't it? It's um, what is it? Eight years ago now, and I think Nick is twenty six, so he'd have been yeah, he'd have been a young and he was hmm. eighteen. And there's a there's a picture actually that's not in the book. I thought we selected it for for the book, and I don't know why. I didn't put it in or insist of putting it in, but I tweeted it recently and I'll, uh, I'll send it to you. There's a picture which somebody sent me who was at the test of, of Nick coming back to the pits at some godforsaken uh, military test center or somewhere in France where they were doing this testing for the Gen 1 car. And the thing is covered in mud. It's like, it's like he's just in a <laughs> sort of a stage at Kiel the forest in the RAC rally or something. It's just full of mud. And Nick's kind of got his visor flicked up and he's sort of just <laughs> look staring into the distance. He's, he's had an off somewhere. But yeah, lots of those things. You know, Lucas Degrassi doing the um, doing the 4am test in Battersea Park hmm. in August of 2014. You know, no one knew about that outside of Formula E um, organisation or operations. Um, so many stories. Um there was that one that, you know, a gag drove the car at Homestead in the US. Um, um, who else? You know, there's a whole list. Of, I've forgotten most of the stuff that's in the book, but most of it is in the book. You know, um, 
Antoine Hubert did, did did a bit of development or some of the development mm. for 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 Spark as well. Um, the late Antoine Hubert and yeah, various other people that you just wouldn't associate. You know, people that drivers that obviously were known to Spark. Uh, Frederic Machiavelli has done some. Emmanuel Collard some testing you know um who was the one that no one had ever heard of antoine leclerc so this hmm. is no one no one I, well i'm pretty sure he's not related to charles leclerc but uh, antoine leclerc was a, a one-time gt3 driver for bentley and, and he did quite a bit of testing as well so yeah lots of yeah, there's plenty in there for the uh the anoraks and bobble hats Stuart. that's for sure absolutely and um it, it's, it seems that there are some things which have been constant, such as the questions over qualifying format. Now, in those first few seasons, uh, qualifying groups were decided by lottery. Do, do you think that this season, with the new qualifying format, we finally happened upon a qualifying format that works for the consensus of people? Or are we going to get... Because uh, uh, my, my view on the current qualifying format is... It's better. It's better for the top drivers than group qualifying, and it's probably fairer. But it, but it might lead to increased stratification of the field. Um, obviously, Formula E, right from the start, has always been uh, willing to innovate and willing to experiment. But uh, is this an experiment too far, or is it going to produce the desired effect? Do you think? Well, we'll have to see. We'll we'll look, we'll find out in Derrida in a couple of weeks. I, I spoke to Van Dorn this morning, actually, at length about the qualifying format. And, um, yeah, you know, most of the drivers think that it's an improvement, and I, and I tend to agree. I think what we had beforehand with this slightly more random element and this unfair multiple groups, and, of course, that means more time, so it means more track evolution, and it means that the, the first group is usually disadvantaged. Not always. I mean, we saw in Monaco last year that, that Fryens Evans and DaCosta were, were at the front of the grid. There wasn't much track evolution. So we got a great race then. And it's I think I think it served a purpose and I think you can you can have that for one maximum two seasons. And we we had it for pretty much three seasons, didn't we, for from, mm. from Gen two. And I think it's it it served its time and it just got too random. And it meant that drivers like Fryens, like Van Dorn um and and various others although they did somehow uh, um stay in the title hunt last season it just became so random and so so there's two trains of thought here the first one is teams and drivers are putting in hours and hours and hours and a lot of money um into this into the championship and Reporting back to the you know the, the CEO and the and the big bosses who who signed the checks the, the morning after a race and saying oh yeah we uh, we qualified twenty third and we finished eighteenth again um, you know they're they're not interested in why hmm. they're just interested in the result you know you you can't frame that really and, and justify it and I know that was a problem particularly with BMW uh, and that that's from somebody at BMW saying that. That wasn't the whole reason that they left, but it was a reason. Um, and then the other train of thought is, well, fans and media and, uh, and other strands of racing often say, look, we've got to make this more, we've got to make racing more appealing. We've got to come up with something to keep the interest of younger fans because, you know, attention spans are, you know, not, not what they were when, 
you know, I'm old enough to remember standing on grass banks at Donington and Silverstone with a lap chart and all that stuff. You know, people mm. generally don't do that anymore. It's a different world, and it's a world which is quicker, faster paced, and 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 you need excitement and you need jeopardy and on all these things. Um, now that's fine, but you can't have it both ways. You know, you can't you can't have that and then say, oh no, we want to go back to something a bit more hierarchical and structured. You know, you have one or the other. You can't have both. So there's that, you know, there's that whole kind of existential thing, I think, really. And it's it's an interesting case study what's happened in Formula E. We've gone back to what we think is going to be a more hierarchical thing. Personally, from my point of view, I'd much prefer that because what it gives the media and what it gives TV and, and, and everyone who watches it is a, is a structured narrative on a season. Whereas last year we went to Berlin and I remember talking to one of the commentators, Jack Nichols, hmm. and, and Dario Franchitti, and saying, "We both just, we all just looked at each other and just went, well, how do we, how do you structure this? How do you report on it? How do you, you know, twelve people up for the title? I mean, hmm. you know, I mean, it's it's a difficult one, isn't it? So last year was, I think, fine. You can get away with it, but they had to do something. They did it, and I think it will be better. Uh, I don't think it'll always be fantastic. I think in the duels that they're going to do, there is the threat, obviously." somebody making a mistake and when that mistake is made it's essentially a dead session isn't it because all the other guy has to do is get it round and, and, and cross the line so there'll be a few there'll be a few occasions where that happens generally i think it will be a better format and i think it will reward the the, the more competitive teams but don't you know it, it there still will be surprises you know it's not going to be you know it's not going to be like f1 was in 2019 2020 it's it's going to be it's it's going to have the odd surprise now and again. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a happy balance, really. Okay. Um, who would you say? Um, I've, I mean, I, I would imagine uh, Buemi and Degrassi crop up as the uh, as the defining drivers of the uh, Gen One era. But uh, w- would you put Jean Eric Verne in there as well, simply because uh, obviously he won that season four title uh, in the Gen One era's final season. But he he also made such a splash in the Andretti in Punta del Este in his first Formula E race that it it almost felt like him bursting onto the scene and announcing himself would you put him up with Buemi and Degrassi as defining drivers of that Gen 1 era yes I would yeah and, and there are sections within the book that, that that talk about all those stories I mean the, the Degrassi and Buemi things um, constantly fascinated me because I, I knew both of them before Formula E and um, in, in World Endurance Championship and some other formulas as well and, and they are as apposite characters as you can imagine um, so always interesting uh how how they interact and and, and my word didn't they interact in, in well yeah two and, and um you, you 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 actually write about just how fierce the rivalry was in seasons two and three um uh, being being a you know tv viewer at the time i i i didn't I didn't actually know. I, I I thought it was maybe a little bit played up for the cameras. It it surprised me reading the book ju- just how much they uh, at times seemed to dislike each other uh, for the things that happened on track. And you know there were some serious incidents clearly. But um, also what comes up is how Nelson Piquet Jr. Um, feels that uh, Degrassi uh, was maybe an indirect, maybe a direct part of uh, what what you say is um, could be seen as a blackballing before that first season. Um, 
I, I mean, maybe maybe let's paint a picture here. So Nelson Piquet got the drive with Team China later next Ev, and um, he drove for them for the first few seasons. But um, and of course won the title in that first season. But uh, it it wasn't clear from the outside that he was being prevented or uh, that he was other teams were being discouraged from hiring him. That that's an interesting subplot that you write in the book. Yes, yes, it is very. Um... I don't know. I'm a northern boy, so I'd say narky. It was very <laughs> narky. You know, they, there was bad blood between them before Formula E. And, um, yeah, Nelson was talking to various parties. He was he was pretty close to um, Edams um, to doing something there. He spoke quite closely with uh, Guri and another team, and I can't remember. It might have been Andretti. But certainly he was close to deals, and they didn't happen. And he felt, and, and and again, this is this is from Nelson's side of things that, um, yeah, you could call it blackballed. I think it was uh, some gentle persuasion somewhere along the line. Uh, and, and, and you know, Nelson came to Formula E um, a good few years after his um, his difficult Formula One career, and there mm. was a lot of uh, there was still a lot of bad blood and ill feeling in the industry about everything that happened there, and I think. Some of that influenced what happened. I mean, ultimately, you know, Nelson got a seat um, with um, with the Chinese um, team, China Racing. Uh, did a great job. I remember Monaco the first season, and um, that when you talked about overegging the rivalry, I mean, definitely that happened between PK and Degrassi at Monaco. You know, it was mm. a directive from Formula E. Let's you know, let's give them both a poke and see what happens. <laughs> um, after you know, after there was a bit of a nothing much going on in qualifying there's a bit of bulking going on whatever um but to me that that had always festered and they genuinely didn't really like each other when me and degrassi you know i don't think there was a real antipathy there really probably until season two you know when they were both going for the title but when had just come off that horrendous um le mans where he'd lost le mans in the last two laps hmm. Um, it was a very difficult period for him, and there was that tumultuous finale in Battersea Park, and and Lucas rear-ended him at the first corner. Um, you know, Lucas to this day says, you know, it was just a, yeah, it wasn't a pre-orchestrated thing. Um, you know, her, only he knows that. Um, in the book, we 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 just present the facts, and and I spoke to both drivers and revisited that, and it, it's all there. You know that. It's all, you know, it's all, it's all black and black on white now. What I, what I do love about that section of the book is there's a terrific picture of the two, which again has never been seen before of them talking, and there's kind of a it, they're talking close to a window, so mm. they're kind of they're reflected, so you can see two of two each of them, and and Lucas is quite animated, and Buen is just kind of, you know, just listening. It's a great mm. photo. I mean, I like that. A good part of the book was choosing the photos, and that. That's one of my favourites. But, you know, going back to Verne as well, I mean, one of the great stories of Formula E has to be to Cheetah and that whole roller coaster that Verne went on from Andretti um, to uh, DS Virgin, which was mm -hmm. a disastrous season for him. And there's a little section about how that all went wrong, which is very interesting and illuminating. And then how he ended up at the Cheetah, which, you know, he was kind of molded around John Eric uh, with with Chinese money from uh, from a sports marketing company, hmm. um, and and they won the title in their second season together with a customer powertrain. Um, and I, 
distinctly remember being at Donington for the test. It must have been 2016, just as the team was formed. And it they were just they were just a comedy circus. I mean, the, the team were just an absolute disaster. And that continued for the first two or three races. And then they got their act together, won a race at the end of the season in New York. And lo and behold, the next season, Jeff goes and wins it. I mean, I'll tell you how bad. And, and again, another great photo in the book how bad it was at Tachita. When they started at that Donington test, they had no premises. They Their, their assembly area and their gearbox working area uh, was a hotel room in Castle Donington. Wow. Um, and one of the um, one of the engineers, uh, Leo Thomas, who's still with them and kind of manages the whole engineering team at Tachita, um, sent me this photo and, and really generously said I could put it in the um, in the book. And it shows him and uh, Pascal Tortosa, who um, was a strategist at Tachita, sadly sadly died uh, at the end of last year. But mm. but Pascal is shown on the bed <laughs> picking away at this these components. And they're in a hotel room in, in Castle Donington uh, <laughs> using this place as a gearbox assembly area. And then you know, a year later, they're winning races. I mean, amazing! What a what a story that was. It, it's it's quite incredible, and um, actually, it's it's an interesting postscript, if you like, that uh, it looks as though from the outside again that uh, the sort of. Uh, um, Tachita's story might be petering out to an unfortunate end. I mean, obviously, they're registered for this season and DS have agreed to the Gen 3 rule set, but um, they might not be going with Tachita. And it, it's just interesting how much of the team's fortunes seem to rely at this stage on the business climate within China and um, on how much investment they can actually get out of uh, Seeker, the original investors. Um, I, I wonder if... Um, I wonder if maybe we might be looking back on those early seasons as uh, kind of the start of something great and on this season as the end of something great. Well, I hope not because they're, they're a terrific team and, and, I, and I like everyone who, who works there. They're, 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 really, they're a really, really good team. I can't emphasise just how, I mean, you know, you know how good they are. They've won multiple titles. But, you know, they're, they're the benchmark in many areas and, and they work on... Um, you know, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say a meager budget, but certainly they are not within the top three spenders in Formula E. So to me, that's all the more remarkable that they're able to to achieve what they have. You know, whatever pans out will pan out. You know, my my feeling is that this will be the last season of the S and Tachita together, um, and and that you know it would be really up to commercial aspects of whether Tachita continue. But I'm I'm, I'm fairly sure that DS will go elsewhere. Um, and and yeah, a huge same. You know, ultimately, I think um, as as journalists, as media, you just look at it and go, well, how does something so good become, you know, not not workable um, so quickly? Uh, but you know, that's all part of the trying to find out what the story is. And ultimately, you have to look at the owners. You know, you have to look at Seeker and, and what their uh, what their aims and objectives are, and, and, and how they see the future for the team. Yeah, absolutely. but let's see. Let's see. There, there may be a, there may be a miracle. Let's let, let's see. Hopefully, there will be. Well, indeed, and uh, bringing th- bringing things up to the Gen Two era. Obviously, we've had 
um, different kinds of dramas in Gen 2 than we have in Gen 1. So, some things have remained constant, such as the rivalries, such as, you know, the the closeness of racing. Um, I, I'd even argue maybe the racing's been better in the Gen 2 era, uh, for, for much of the time at least. But uh, th- there have been some new problems or some new teething issues for Formula E, such as, well, keeping major manufacturers interested, which obviously in 2014-15 wasn't a problem, but uh, it, it is now. Now, um, the Maserati deal was announced this week and that got a lot of people excited and it I don't know it, it feels almost like when a celebrity couple's in trouble and they find that uh, and the press find that they're having a new baby it, it's 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 some it's something good for people to focus on that gets people away from maybe the negative stories but how important is it that new manufacturers keep coming in yeah I know I know what you mean by that um it's well it's it's hugely important especially if you've been through a, a rough patch which formula e has done since the end of 20 well the early 2020 and you know yes the pandemic has, has definitely had a big part of that uh, has been a big part of that still i think that really looking at it you know three manufacturers have left in close succession all for different reasons but there are certainly some strands that you can bridge between the three so you know for formula e's had a pretty big internal restructure which was obviously orchestrated by jamie regal lots mm. of new people coming in from both inside and outside of the sport and and and, and that gelling um has not been easy so, some of it hasn't worked some of it has worked um I think in the circumstances, getting calendars together has been a massive challenge, and, and they've generally done pretty well um, because, you know, unlike Formula One and DTM and other championships, they have to find pretty much city centre or pseudo city city centre tracks. Maserati, you know, Maserati is one of three manufacturers that have been on the radar for the past year, I'd say. The other two being McLaren and uh, Lucid Motors. Um, mm. I I don't think McLaren will come in. I think they're going to make it. I think they've probably made their decision. But, you know, if you ask me now, I don't think they will come in. Lucid Motors could possibly come in, but not until uh, season. I've got to get my, I've got to get my, uh, yeah, season, season 11, the second homologation of Gen 3, I think is the earliest that Lucid will come in. Uh, and remember that they're actually providing the spec front MGUs for Gen 3 as well. Um, so, yeah, manufacturers, getting major manufacturers into the championship, look, they've done amazingly well to get the number that they did. I think the I think it was up to nine at one stage, or certainly eight major manufacturers, what you call major hmm. OEMs in the championship. If you lose three or four of them, it's not a complete disaster. I mean, it, you know, it's a disaster in a way. It, it's more damaging in WEC, where you had Audi, you had um, Toyota, and, and you have Porsche, and, and two of them mm. left, leaving only Toyota. And we've seen it a bit in GT Pro as well, where BMW have left and, and Aston Martin have stopped. Um, in Formula E, there was such an abundance that actually you can still survive. And actually, the, the seesaw, as I call it, the balance between privateers and manufacturers, becomes more level. So now what you're going to get in the next, well, I'm, I'm expecting the announcements to be made in the next two, three weeks, that there will be new hookups, new partnerships. So, you know, I've written recently that 
I'm expecting it's not confirmed at all between the two parties, but I'm I'm expecting Envision to race with Jaguar Powertrain in season three next year, 23. Hmm. You know, I'm expecting Venturi to be with Maserati next season. Um, You know, there could be others. I mean, it's they're not decided, but this is the way it's going to go, and there'll be more of a balance. So, the point being, Stuart, is that the infrastructure and the organization the roadmap of formula e has been well thought out and, and you have to have that because if you don't have that then you get this traditional classic roller coaster of two years of peaks and then two years of troughs two years of peaks two years of troughs and you can survive doing that because sports cars has done that for the last 25 years but it's not good for business uh, and it's not good for a startup, you know, sports cars have been racing at Sebring, Le Mans, Daytona for, you know, in Le Mans' case, nearly 100 years. But Formula E doesn't have that heritage. So it has to keep this, uh, it's got the relevance, it has to keep this commercial prosperity. There's got to be, there's got to be something in it for 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 manufacturers and, and, and for, for the promoters. And you do need manufacturers, but everyone has to play nicely. And and getting that balance is, you know, I followed, um, I followed WEC, as I told you, sports cars. International Mm. touring cars is a great example in the mid nineties where it was a massive boom for two years. And then it just died because the costs became ridiculous. Um, So you have to manage costs and Formula E have recently done that with a, financial regulation that you know you can spend 13 million um for the first two years of gen 3 and then it goes up to 15 million manufacturers get an additional 25 million for their homologations you can argue the toss about if they're the right figures or not but the fact is that they've done something there is this financial framework to work hand in glove with the technical regulations and the technical roadmap and that's absolutely needed for formulary but what it does is it gives stability and it gives um, it gives a strategic purpose to manufacturers like Nissan, like Jaguar, mm. hopefully like Porsche, although you know the curveball there is going to be whether they do Formula 1 or not, um, but at least it's there. So, you know, you probably you have to get at least you've at least got at the very least, for the next four years you have Jaguar, Nissan, Hendra, probably Porsche, You've got Maserati as this kind of pseudo brand manufacturer, whatever you want to call them. Hmm. And then you have some really, really good quality. You know, you got Neo. Neo are a startup. Yeah. A perfectly capable startup um, EV uh, company. And then you've got really good quality um, privateer teams like Venturi and Vision and, and Andretti. Hmm. It's, a, it's a damn healthy championship. So what I'm, what I'm saying is that... You, to have nine to ten, uh, eight, nine, ten manufacturers, although it sounds great, you know, will only ever be for a short term period of time, um, and, and then you will have to, you know, then then the few will drop off and a few others will drop off. Uh, but if mm-hmm. you only start with three or four, then you, you know you're in real trouble as a startup. So, um, yeah, lots lots going on as always. It's an interesting point, and obviously, I was following the the uh, Mercedes announcement to leave Formula E at the end of this season, and it, it just struck me at the time that 
maybe there is a misconception on some major manufacturers' parts as to what being in Formula E can do for them. So uh, Ryan Eric King, who was another guest on the podcast previously, said to me that, um, in his opinion, Formula E is great for getting electric car buyers to buy other electric cars. It's maybe not the place you want to be if you want to tell people you should switch from your ICE car to an electric car, um, just because of the way the fan base is and, and because of the way it's positioning itself. But I've written this list of uh, of manufacturers that, you know, could conceivably join Formula E that have more than one EV in their range. And it's just interesting that they aren't. I mean, for example, why aren't Ford, why aren't Kia looking at Formula E? Is there an underlying reason, do you think, why there's still a reticence outside of the current manufacturer base? Well, they've all looked at it. Um, you know, prior to working for the race, I worked for a website called eRacing365. And, and we uh, had several discussions with, with Ford. Um, and I've spoken to I've spoken to representatives from Hyundai, Hyundai Kia. It's, um, you know, it's mm. the same group. They have looked at it. And um, I think Ford seriously looked at it in 2018, 19 time, um, but decided against it. I mean... Ultimately, marketing their models, their ranges to would-be consumers. Um, you don't have to do it through motorsport. It's, it, it's an obvious thing to do, but actually there are other things, there are other ways they can do it. Um, so people forget that. I think, you know, when, when we're involved in motorsport, we think, oh, you know, you've got to do that. You know, they've got to spend, you know, Porsche have got to spend money in motorsport. Actually, they don't. And, and you know, they, they, they spend a lot in tennis. And they spend a lot in um, show jumping or hmm. polo or whatever, you know. It's just that motorsport is, you know, very close to what they sell and, and tends to get the first look in. Um, uh, future manufacturers, there will be there will be two or three, undoubtedly, that come in for Gen Four, probably. But that's a you know that's four or five years away. Hmm. I think a lot of a lot of manufacturers just waiting to see how Formula E regroups after this bumpy couple of years and um, um, people uh, uh, quite a few people got a little bit excited about BMW and, and Audi and Mercedes leaving and, and look you know I'm I, I'm not saying that uh, I'm, I'm not saying that at the race with that we didn't um, report that in some ways of looking at what was going wrong and why some manufacturers were not completely satisfied with Formula E. That's only one part of the issue. The, a lot of the other parts of the issue, particularly with Mercedes, were, were internal factors. Um, so it's not always clear-cut why manufacturers leave, uh, just as it isn't why they join in the first place. It's, a, it's multiple things coming together um, uh, before decisions are made. And I think, I think Formula E will just be very similar to to other other championships and you know there's there's a lot of other championships coming around now Formula E is going to be far from the only um electric show in town you know we're going to have electric mm -hmm. gt championship very soon we've got we've already got a pure tcr championship we're going to have you know electric rallycross we're going to have probably electric rallying there's certainly going to be an electro stroke hydrogen element to le mans in the next five six years so there are choices. Um, I just think Formula E, once the Gen 3 car comes in, which I spoke to Benoit Trellier, who 
did a lot of the or is doing the testing as we speak mm. development testing and, and he said that, that you know is, is a big step it's a big step in every area so the cars are going to be quicker more spectacular and on street circuits that means a lot of really dramatic racing and um i think generally formula e is in pretty good health uh still got manufacturers it's a genuine world championship new races this year um i think once the once we get over the the worst of the uh the situation with traveling and and various bureaucracy in, in and around the pandemic i think uh it'll be in pretty good shape well, plenty of reasons to be optimistic about the future then. Um, Sam Smith, thank you very much for coming on the Motion E podcast. And uh, Sam's book, Formula E Racing for the Future, is available from all good and presumably some not good booksellers right now. So uh, go out go out and find it. Um, Sam, what, what are you looking forward to most about the coming Formula E season? Um, good question. What am I looking forward to? Um, seeing who's the king of qualifying. Um, I think it's going to be super interesting and, and that will get that will actually feed into a lot of the competitiveness of the championship I think who can who can crack that um, I'm looking forward to seeing um, well we've got three new rookies haven't we so there's going to be a little mini rookie championship which is always fun um, Askew, Giovinazzi and uh, Tink, um Tickton. Uh, Dan Tickton. Yeah, nearly said Tinknell then. Uh, yeah, Dan Tickton. <laughs> that would be fun. Uh, yeah, yeah. well, actually, Harry was very, you know, Harry was close to getting a drive this year, but uh, that's a story for another day. Hmm. Um, so that's that'll be fun. I think the whole brewing up of the Gen 3 um, hype will be really nice, and, and seeing that car in action for the first time will be, will be good. Uh, and yeah, just, you know, for me, it's always about the competition. It's always about um it's always about the race you know it's always about who comes out on top and, and how they do it and, and why they do it and then you know all the stories feed in like ventricles in and around it don't they so um i love it i love the championship i think it's terrific and uh i think yeah race wise i'm really looking forward to vancouver i think that will be um a terrific event i've spoken at length to the promoters there and they've got huge plans for that race um so if anyone's listening in uh, North America, get yourself to Vancouver at the at the beginning of, of June. Uh, sorry, July, beginning of July. July the 2nd is the race, which is Canada Day, I think, is their big sort of national day. Um, well, I, so I, I remember... I remember the Vancouver IndyCar race, and I'm so looking forward to that because I, I just I just feel like it's an ideal city to host street racing. Yeah, yeah it is, and they, they really get sustainability and, and green messaging there, and it's going to be... It's going to be a huge event, and I think I've never been, but um, everyone that I've spoken to who has been to Vancouver says that it's got a real buzz about it in the in the summertime. So, and it is on the site of the old IndyCar track. It'll be very different, of course, but it is on the same site at Falls Creek. So that will be good. Seoul, the season ending race, should be fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking forward to going there. Um, it'll be interesting to see if and how they change the London excel circuit because i mean for sure it needs changing i'm hoping <laughs> that they can um just smooth out some of that so we don't get some of the um some of the rental go-karting shenanigans that we got last year um and then there's, yeah and then there's just uh, there's just a, the whole um there's a whole uh, what, what do you call it intrigue about what's going to happen in uh gen in gen 3 with the teams and the 
the manufacturers and, and then you know you took in the driver market as well you've got guaranteed stories so, so yeah, yeah it keeps me off the streets well it's going to be a fascinating season and uh, thank you again sam smith for coming on and uh, talking about your your uh, your career in formula e it's a pleasure Stuart. thanks for asking me thank you